I do believe that the most important thing with security is that collaboration and communication must be constant. It must be live. It must be regularly tested and interrogated. It must be debriefed because actually that's what saves lives. From the Jewish Founders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andreas Pogoyni. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we're speaking with Carly Meisel. Carly, besides being a dear friend and a cherished colleague, is the global CEO of Kirsch Philanthropies. Additionally, she advises the Kirsch family on communications and risk across all their entities. Carly has served as Director of Communications and Philanthropy at the Tamares Group, the private equity investment firm headed by Finnish philanthropist Poyu Sabudowicz. And before that, Carly was Head of Communication at Bicom. She also worked in public affairs at the Israeli Embassy between 2010 and 2012. Carly is a board member of Community Security Service, CSS, and also sits on the Community Security Initiatives Advisory Board. She co-chairs the Advisors Committee of SI3, UGIA Impacts Investing Vehicle. Carly is a graduate of the Program for Leadership Development at Harvard and holds a BA in Politics and International Relations from the University of Nottingham. I wanted very much to have this conversation with Carly to debrief on a new initiative that she spearheaded, Shine a Light on Antisemitism. I think that this program offers a lot of food for thought on different dimensions. How to offer a new take on an intractable problem, how to partner among funders, and how to get organizations that are usually competitive to work together. Me being me and Carly being Carly, the conversation also veered to other topics, but I think you'll find them informative and interesting as well. So take a listen. Carly, so it's great to have you here uh, in the time in which you're busy with Shine a Light, the program we want to be talking about, among many other things, about your work and your philanthropic leadership, and especially about how this new idea in a new approach, actually, I would say, to 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 deal with the issue of anti-Semitism came about. But before we go there, tell me, did you ever think that you'd be doing this one day when you were like a young girl in London. <laughs> did you think... Oh, did, I, be... did I think I'd be leading a campaign for the American Jewish community? No. Exactly. I did, not, was... I did not think that in London as a child. It wasn't. In... So what did you think in London as a child? My parents are still waiting for me to go to law school, which is... Oh where I think I said I was going at some point as a teenager. As a child, I would tell people I wanted to work for the United Nations. Then Which you kind of did, to be fair. Then I discovered that, unfortunately, if you want to get anything done, no, the United Nations is not necessarily the place to head for. Um, so I got over that fairly fast. You know, everything since then has been an accident while my parents wait for me to go to law school. But wait, you did work kind of for the United Nations. Not for the United Nations, but for the Israeli yes, embassy. Yes, uh, my... 
well, not actually my first job. My first job was working for the Community Security Trust in London, yeah. which is the Jewish security organization, as I like to say, best in class. I think right. others would agree, which I got involved in at 18 and is really been one of my biggest passions, effectively looking at Jewish security for communities initially in the UK, but now in the US and, and more broadly. I got very involved in that as a volunteer. And then when I graduated from university, I basically called them up and said, you know, I'd like to work for you full-time running the campus division and they said surely not um this was be the first woman and the first woman who was supposed to go off and go to law school and you know had a university degree and things and I was very robustly keen on on doing this job and they tried to talk me out of it a few times I don't know if that was a reflection on me or them but I jumped into it with both feet and we have an expression that when you when you join CST they brand you for life in a kind of Yellowstone fashion. So I'm still very much CST to my core. I've I've managed to harness that to focus on Jewish security in America since I moved here. But that was my initial kind of first role. And at that time, the Israeli ambassador was having a lot of trouble on campuses across the UK, and he kept getting evacuated. Yeah, that was Ron, right? Ron Prosser. At that point, that was Ron Prosser. It was the same time as Michael Oren was being evacuated from American campuses. Right. And the Israelis felt that it was a lost cause and nothing could be done. And the Jewish community didn't necessarily believe that was true. And the head of CST had lunch with the ambassador and said, I think you're just not thinking about this the right way. I have someone in my team who I think could help. The CST job was only ever supposed to be a year. So kind of without my knowledge, they effectively negotiated my transfer from CST to the Israeli embassy. I was kind of a bystander in the process. I knew nothing about Israel. I'd been once on tour at 16 with FZY, managed to catch bronchitis a week in and saw more of Hadassah than I did of Israel. You know, really, my relationship to Israel was more defined through the lens of anti-Semitism I'd experienced on college campuses and less from a a knowledge perspective. So when the Israeli embassy interviews you for a job and says, like, please tell us where these three places are on a map and, you know, what happened in 1948 and where were the borders and you go, I don't know. And doesn't fill them with reassuring confidence, but I did tell them I knew how to solve their problems on on campus or at least stop the ambassador getting evacuated by armed police. So that was my my kind of first job. I, I was very lucky to find Ron Prosser, who, as he will tell anybody since, I am always on loan and still work for him. Yeah. And he's, he's a true mensch, Ron. Uh, a, a very... Uh, mensch yeah. And an incredible person to learn from. I mean, he's yeah. Israel's most senior diplomat. And I was 21 years old, and he is the least ist of anybody I've ever met. He's the least ageist, the least sexist, the least anything. I don't think he could tell you how old I was, whether I was a man or a woman, or what my experience was. He just knew he thought I was good at my job, and therefore he would take me anywhere and give me any opportunity. Very nice. Let's before we go to shine a light specifically. Let let's talk about security for a minute because you and I have something in common. We, we weren't born in this country. We we spent a lot of our formative. But your years. football team turns out to be able to win, and mine doesn't. My football team tends to be the best in the in the world, and your <laughs> we to think be we're the best in the world, but nothing. Yeah, nothing that we've done since. 66 has told us that. As proof as that. And we're not going to talk about the hand of God. By the way, for the listeners, Carly and I had a panel with Tony Blair. And as an Argentinian, I actually got to discuss football with the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and talk about the hand of God that Maradona scored in 1996. 
But anyhow, one thing we have in common is that we we experience we have different experience of the security issues that we face in Jewish community. We both grew up, you know, in context in which it was normal to go through a metal detector to go into a synagogue or have guards in Jewish institutions. And, and we're surprised that in the U.S., you know, thanks God, until then, it used to be pretty open and everybody could go in, sometimes with the terrible, you know, consequences that we that we see, you know, that we saw in Pittsburgh or in Poway and places like that. And you came here and you saw the something that, you know, we, meaning people that come from other countries, can't teach the American Jewish community about security. So tell us a little bit about that journey or that adventure yeah, or misadventure in a way. From the age of 18, my engagement with synagogues was standing outside it so that other people could go in it. Yeah, God uh, forbid you go inside to pray. Exactly. But I was doing the hard part outside. And when I got to America, I'd interned in D.C. when I was 21. And I went to synagogue in Georgetown. And the person who happened to walk in before me was at that stage, Senator Lieberman. And I was shocked. I mean, I couldn't believe that the senator and I are like walking in at the same time. Nobody's asked me who I am, what I'm doing here. And I've sat down in synagogue, you know, in arm's distance, effectively, of Senator Lieberman. Nobody's paid any attention. And then it was Simchat Torah. So we left the synagogue in Georgetown and danced through the streets of D.C. with nobody paying a blind bit of notice. And I happened at that time to be interning and working on a report on extremism and radicalization in Europe. So I was quite literally reading through all of these terror suspects and how they were radicalized and how they operated. And I, I never went back to shul for the three months that I was in D.C. because I found it a very unsafe, unreassuring experience. And I came back to London and said, these Americans are crazy. And everybody said, well, they think they have it different over there. Sort of, that was the end of it. And 10 years go by before I find myself in America again with a cause to go to synagogue. And not long after I moved here, I went to synagogue in in New York. And again, nobody asked who I was. (laughs) Nobody searched me. Nobody was particularly interested in anything about me. And I obviously was out of place. I'd never been in the building before. I did all the things that should have should have set off red flags, not on purpose, but just as somebody who is out of place and is a visitor. And I was surprised and somewhat disconcerted. And I'm afraid I come from the school of thought of when and not if with regards to the need for Jewish security. So my first few months, I sat with many people in the Jewish leadership in in New York. And I was this kind of awkward, broken record where they would be like, somebody count to five before she brings up Jewish security. And I just didn't get it. And everybody kept saying to me, well, it's different here, like, American Jews are more a part of society. It's it's not the same, but also you can pay off-duty police officers to secure it. We have the FBI. Everything here is is different, and we don't volunteer security is not a is not a thing here, and not a thing that that people believe or understand the value of. We are doing certain steps around hardening, and some communities are more advanced than others, but nobody seemed dramatically concerned in the way that I was. And then, unfortunately, reality hit. And, you know, in the space of six to nine months that followed, there was, you know, violent and deadly incident after deadly incident. And, you know, the particularly New York Jewish community who, you know, had been doing some security beforehand. And um, David Pollock from JCRC had been for 20 years trying to get people to listen to his concerns. So there was voices out there, but there wasn't funding champions, there wasn't institutional champions, and there wasn't a change of mindset. Like I often said to Americans, after 9-11, 
Americans would all adopt the phrase of see something, say something. And yet somehow that hadn't transferred over to the Jewish community and their understanding and knowledge of their own piece. You know, I like to add right. the kind of see something, say something, do something component. But I really felt it was a, an educational need. It was a number of things across the board that I was very keen to, to push on. And I have to say my proudest achievement in the five years that I have lived in New York is the part that I and the Kirsch Foundation played in helping get CSI off the ground in New York. You know, I really think it's an example of bringing real expertise to the table of organizations across the space, working together, of bringing in the best staff, of funders really backing the idea. And if you read the New York Times four weeks ago, the value of it speaks for itself. There is no doubt in my mind that CSI has saved lives in New York in the time that it has been set up and will only continue to grow in importance and value for the community. So one of the one of the challenges that we have, and we could we should do a whole other episode on 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 community security because I think it's it's an, it's an important issue. And I always say fighting anti-Semitism is very, is a complex problem. Security is a technical problem. We can we can eventually we we probably you can't hundred percent solve anti-Semitism, but you can make enormous contributions to stop to to make com- the community more secure but it but but here's what i wanted to prove a little bit it comes with a trade-off right like because uh, one of the things that happened in europe is that yes the synagogues are hardened targets and jewish institutions are safer but they're also less welcoming because of being harder targets so how do you how do you square that circle like how do you make how you secure the institution, but it's still a welcoming, warm, open, inclusive Absolutely space? Absolutely a challenge. And it's one of the challenges that the American Jewish community put back to me when I turned up with my kind of British uh right. British desire to pull up the drawbridge and drop the wall. But Security is all about being proactive. It's about the intelligence side. It's about understanding that if the problem has got to your front door, you failed 10 times before that. So right. Actually, I think people think about security in the wrong way. If you think about security as the front door being closed, not letting anybody in, you're planning way too late in the process. So, yes, I do believe that the most important thing security has in a Jewish building is the ability to close their door and keep them closed, by the way. Like you do have to have a mechanism by which the door stays closed and people need to know like whose job it is to close that door and to close it when the threat happens, because putting a wall between you and the problem is the first line of defense. However, I think that is in the journey of securing the Jewish community, step number 10. And and step number one starts a lot earlier with the intelligence capabilities that the ADL has built at the Center on Extremism and that CSI now have embedded within the ADL. It happens with regular communication between communities. Security doesn't stop at the city edge, the state edge. You know, if you're a terrorist and you're driving from Connecticut to New York and you're like, oh, what? Sorry about that, guys. I'll I'll stay on my side of the state. You know, that doesn't happen. Volunteer security, I still believe, plays a huge role. And there is case study after case study across Europe, Australia, South Africa, that shows volunteer security makes a difference. If it is your community standing behind you, you know better what to expect, what fits, what doesn't. You know better that it's your community that you are defending. You are going to be more engaged. You're more regularly training. 
I do think there is a difference, and I will own that, between the UK and the US, which namely is the is the guns question. And that is also something that people face a challenge with around volunteer security. Again, right. I am of the opinion that if you've had to use a gun in this situation, again, you failed 10 stages earlier. So I do believe that volunteer security very much plays a, a real role. But I also believe that it should be in partnership with armed private security, with police, with FBI, the importance of reporting to the ADL hotline yeah. incidents so that people can track them. All of these things are very important building blocks yeah. before you get to that unwelcoming potential closed door. Now, anyway, right. security should be outside a building. So again, you can you can be a welcoming, smiley security guard, right? Take your sunglasses off your face. Say to people, how are you? Nice to see you. You know, doesn't mean if you are yeah. comfortable with the don't public, don't profile them based on you know. Yeah, well, but anyway, use yeah. all of the various skills we have to make a decision. And it, the, if you can take the person, as we would say in the like training security space, from suspicious to non-suspicious, it does. You can then welcome them in. It doesn't have to be that like, oh, if you don't fit the profile of what I was expecting, because actually, all you're all you're doing as a security person is making sure they're not suspicious. You don't care if they're a member, if they paid for their ticket, if actually this is there's 10 minutes left of the service. All of those things are the community's challenge. Right. Your job right. is just to make sure that they are safe. And I think if uh, security is thought of more holistically, it doesn't need to be an unwelcoming experience. And and moving and using it as a bridge to go to, to shine a light, I mean... It is also a space in which there are many players, right, in the security space. And, and one of the main skills for a funder like, like you, like a Kirsch uh, Foundation, wanting to operate in that space is how to navigate that diversity of, of actors in the space, right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, there are some amazing and very dedicated organizations. Yeah, but by the way, both, both in the community side and in the secular side, like, the authorities and local and federal and national. Well, thankfully, as a funder, I don't have to engage with the authorities. We we rely on the organizations for that. And that is important that like authorities hear the, yeah. hear the message with one voice, with one piece of data, with one clear unified message. Otherwise, you're not getting the right amount of funding for your security enhancements and you're not getting the right police officers deployed to the right places. So right. I think the first thing is the funders should only worry about the, the Jewish uh, communal organizations right um you know in the security space to some degree i think i'm more opinionated than i am in other spaces we fund because i have a, a subject matter expertise i think the most important thing with security and you touched on it before is that this is a technical problem to solve it's actually not a particularly hard strategic problem to solve it must be debriefed because actually that's what saves lives Right. Again, if you look back at the case study of, of what happened in New York a few weeks ago, and you know, there's been a number of articles written on it, like the communication between the community organizations is what saved lives. The right. trusted relationships, the WhatsApp groups, it doesn't have to be complicated or sexy, it has to work. I also think people have to know to stay in their lanes, right? CSF does volunteer security, it does it very well. The ADL does incident reporting, intelligence gathering, communicating with authorities, it does it well. It shouldn't be off to set up a volunteer security division. SCAN does the hardening of buildings and working with communities to design yeah, their security. SCAN being the, the GFNA. GFNA, exactly. Uh, uh, security organization. Yeah. yeah, does that piece also very well. When you bring that together, there you for you have a holistic security approach. So but each yeah. of them has to 
then bring their skills to the table and over communicate effectively, right. right? Because that's that's where you find the the opportunities to spot real issues. Right. So that gives us a perfect segue to to uh, to the issue of shine a light. Because in shine a light, you basically, as a funder, what, what you guys did was to actually identify something in which many different organizations could cooperate. Organizations that are sometimes adversarial, you know, or not, I wouldn't say adversarial, but they have their own, you know, territories, as it were. And, and you kind of presented, you know, first of all, discovered the gap and then found a way for them to work together. And as somebody who works with funders, I'm, I'm really intrigued in, in that, in how that process worked, because funders, we, we fund things, but we fund things, but do we really exert influence in a way that helps folks work together as much as we could? So I think I have a, an advantage in to degree of still being an outsider, you know, as, as I think you can hear, yeah. I'm not an American Jew. And to be honest, in the four and a half years I've been here, I've barely scratched the surface of, of kind of understanding all of the, the community. You know, there are as many Jews where I grew up in London as where I now live in a three block radius on the Upper West Side. So, right. you know, it's, it's definitely an adjustment. I have always been a, a huge believer in one of our one of our principles in, in the Kirsch family, you know, always says one plus one equals 11 and one plus one plus one equals 111. And I think for us, that really is how we do funding. It's how we do collaboration. It's definitely about the we and not about the me. And that's how we do all our grant making as much as possible. It's right. not about forcing it. We don't say go away and imagine a project and come back to us and like make your lives harder and, and you know, dream up something fanciful. We say, look for real areas of collaboration. Sometimes we can see them ourselves from the grant requests. And, and that's effectively how we tackle all of our grant making. And that's really just the principle of what we, what we rolled out here. I think the other thing that here is it's very much a coalition of the willing. We're not, right. we're not forcing anybody. We're not holding a gun to anybody's head. What, what we wanted to do was say, we want to convene a group for a, a time and, and a moment in time where we think the situation calls for it. Like we think that anti-Semitism in America has got to a point where a full collaborative, cohesive community response is required. There are amazing organizations doing this day in and day out for incredibly dedicated staff. And, and it's a very challenging space to be in. And we're not professing to be the experts, but what we are saying is we want to use this as an opportunity. And there are seven, eight other funders alongside us, all of whom have exactly the same outlook, all of whom are funding in this space, are committed to this space. And effectively, what we wanted to say to people was, let's bring in expertise from across the branding, marketing, social media DEI education world that aren't normally involved with the Jewish community or Jewish community campaigns will effectively like pay for the best platform convening educational opportunities you could want. You bring your expertise to the table. Right. right? So if you're an education organization. You bring the education expertise. I don't. If you're a social media organization, you bring those expertise to the table. So we weren't asking anybody to change who they are to change their expertise, to give up their focus and their strategy. We were rather saying, let's come together and pull in one direction for this month. So so if you if you so if you had to give me the 
elevator pitch of what Shine a Light is and what does it try to achieve? How would you define it? So I think the first thing is, is that Shine a Light is a campaign rooted around Hanukkah that's designed to quite literally use the festive season to shine a light on anti-Semitism and to dispel the darkness. It's an opportunity for as many like-minded partners, organizations, companies, institutions, individuals to come together to shine a light on what we describe as modern day anti-Semitism. And what that is, is it's anti-Semitism rooted in the definition of IRA. Mm-hmm. Um, and effectively, that's that's basically the 30-second the elevator pitch that people then signed up to become a part of and help us design the strategy on what's the best way for the community to engage in those spaces. Many of us are familiar with, with the massive events like the one we had in a couple of days ago uh, in Times Square. And, and But, but China Life is, is more than that, isn't it? It's just not, I mean, events is a part of it. Absolutely. So, and China Life, version 1.0 and version 2.0, i.e. last year and this year, has also grown and morphed. And, you know, last year it was an idea that we came up with alongside our partners 10 weeks before we launched it. I would say in some cases that that made it easier than this year, and in some cases it made it harder. But what we did after that was debrief, chat with, at that point, the 60 partners, worked out what worked, what didn't work, what we should add more of and do less of. And this year, you know, came out bigger and and better and I hope bringing more value to all the partners than than in year one. So we have a number of of different what we call pillars to this, you know, so effectively we can we can run through them all. But on the website, which is shinealighton.com, all of this is available and very um, transparently and openly up there. And we're now at over 100 organizations and over 120 companies as, as partners. But basically, it's underpinned by several several ways. The first part is education. So we worked with 10 educational organizations to look at bringing the best resources together from across our community for different ages, different communities, different levels of knowledge, and convened all of that on the platform, linking back to the various organizations' websites. But effectively, it is a, a resource for everybody to use and access. And then we also designed some one-pages working with experts that we brought in to answer what we would say are like frequent FAQs that we find people ask us. So like a basic anti-Semitism primer, examples of modern day anti-Semitism, like breaking down the IRA definition with real life examples, you know, looking at what do each of those things mean and giving people a kind of one page bite-sized resource. Across the education space, there was also engagement with teachers and teachers unions, with school boards, with kids in Jewish and non-Jewish schools, with teachers convening platforms, with social media for um, educational resources. So all across the educational platforms, educational organizations came together as one at regular meetings to talk about, okay, we have these relationships, we have these expertise, great, you have those relationships, you have those expertise, you continue to go off and engage. So everybody kept their own relationships that they shared and they communicated using, you know, a Google Doc as to what they were going to do and how they were going to do it. So, so in a way, there's like three concentric circle of of partnership or of collaboration here. One is the collaboration among the funders themselves. The other one is the collaboration among the different Jewish communal organizations, right? Like ADL, yep. AJC, JCRCs, 
you know, all different organizations. And the other one is collaborations with the outside world, right? Like you have secular partners, you have partners in like... Yeah, yeah we have 120 workplace partners and that's all the major sports leagues across America and, you know, a huge number of law firms and accounting firms and, you know, so, big tech companies and everything. And But we were very clear as what does it mean to be a partner, so, right? Couldn't just say... I'd like to stick our logo on the website. Right. I would like to break that down. Like meaning, what makes it so that the collaboration among partners, among philanthropic partners, among funders is successful? Like, because I, I see a lot of collaborations among funders. Some of them succeed, some of them don't. What do you think was the secret sauce in this particular one? I'm, I'm talking just about... The, the funders fund, you mentioned, yeah. the eight foundations, eight major foundations that are yeah. doing this? So yeah. I think, first of all, we all regularly work together. We all had very open, transparent conversations about, you know, there's we could split hairs over different things that we agree or don't agree on, but actually that we all subscribe to the broad strokes of this initiative and that we all bring different expertise to the table, that we all have different relationships with grantees, but that we all felt this was a unique moment and that the moment was what drove us all to be together. And I have to say that I have a very, perhaps very fortunate or wonderful experience with my foundation colleagues. But I think, you know, this is not the first. The security is another example of collaboration where right. you hosted us all last year to have a very good discussion on coming together to do to do funding. I also think the fact that we are all like equal players around the table, we all we have a very open transparent relationship doesn't mean we didn't have some like hug and wrestle conversations during this or some moments where you know we didn't agree or disagree but we really very much put the cause at the top of it and it's been very transparent right there's been no surprises everything you need to know about us is on the website and I think perhaps that was the secret sauce I I mean I guess maybe you'd have to ask my colleagues and but I I think it was a good example of we all agree on the mission we all agree this is the moment where the mission must trump everything else. Right. And we all know each other well and, you know, have a good dose of respect and appreciation for each other. So in a, in a way, I think that the networking work, you know, pays because, you know, you develop those relations of trust that then in a moment like this, you can you can, you can can use and leverage to, to collaborate in a more effective way. You don't have to build a relationship. The relation exists. Yes. You know? And what do you think brought... Th- those all those different organizations to the table how much you think it was because the funders were asking as opposed to we really think this is so look a real need funders asking could get them into a room i don't think it necessarily gets them to the table right. we we funders try and talk to organizations about things all the time <laughs> doesn't always work i think they felt the same i think they felt this was a moment in time that the, the cause had to trump anything else right. and that there was a real need for collaboration. You know, I think there has traditionally been some struggles in this space around territorialness, staying in lanes, right. opportunities to understand even the difference between the national organizations, the regional, the local. I think they needed a safe space to know that actually Everybody who'd who'd signed up had already agreed in a one-on-one conversation with us to the rules of the game, right? You knew you were coming to a convening and a 
and a collaboration. You knew like what the purposes of it was. You knew the definition of anti-Semitism that we were working to. You knew that even just the time of the year, right? Like everybody had had the same laying of the groundwork and effectively understood what it means to be a partner of Shine a Light before they came to the table. You know, it's kind of interesting because anti-Semitism is a a crowded space. I mean, fighting anti-Semitism is a crowded space. Many organizations that that pop up. You could argue anti-Semitism right now is also a crowded space. Yeah, it's a very crowded space, unfortunately. But but yet, I think that the part of the beauty of, of this project is that it managed to find a gap in that all that cacophony of, boi- of voices doing this. Like nobody was doing exactly what, Ch- what China Light is doing and in the way that China Light is doing it. So probably that's also a role that funders can play, sort of identify, okay. You know, having a view of the entirety of the field, you can say, okay, we're over-invested here, we're under-invested here. And I think that... To, I also to, think funders yeah. can inherently take more risk, right? right? We don't have the same rigorous governance structures, like places where we have to be, you know, we should obviously be responsible with money, but effectively we have to justify it to ourselves versus right. justifying it to our not-for-profit board from that board up to the fundraising committee, from that fundraising committee up to the donors, right? Like it's very much, we could be riskier. We could justify spending money on, you know, the best branding agency versus, you know, the level C branding agency, because, you know, we very much said we wanted this to feel like if Coca-Cola was doing Hanukkah around and and fighting anti-Semitism, you know, the best in class where, you know, you all get ready for the Christmas truck advert that's going to show you the Santa bringing the Coke, like very identifiable. You really know that Coca-Cola marketing company knows what they're doing. And that was the approach we wanted to take here. I also think that, that we could make quicker decisions. We could be more nimble because it was the funders themselves approving things. And and I think there's stuff to learn. We funders should learn from that. Like how much infrastructure and rim roll do we put on our grantees if they want to take a risk or they want to be able to quickly direct something? Like I think in other words, why why wouldn't we give them also, not particularly in this particular space, but but in others, like the the leeway to take the same risks that we take when we do it alone, right? And I think that's a very real learning for us and for and for other funders. And I also think we were able to walk between the Jewish communal professional world and the non-Jewish professional right. world, right? Let's take the corporate space. Yeah. You know, f- funders, family offices, et cetera, very much move between those two worlds. So for us, it was ve- it was visible to see that actually a real gap was in how we engage in, in the corporate space around anti-Semitism. Now, Jewish professional organizations are less, directly engaged in that world. Now, there were already some organizations who were starting to think about this, not those who'd kind of sat down and set a strategy and been like, right, how do we engage? And one of the takeaways from last year was that the organizations who were a partner and a party to the corporate pillar, ADL, Project Shamar, Brandeis Center, um, AJC, UJA, and others actually noticed the real value. And they, as I said, some of them were already doing work in this space, but not as strategically and as targeted, notice the real value and the meaningful need for this work. And and between last year and this year, have introduced strategies, have hired staff, have 
develop incredibly robust and good curriculum that we were then we didn't pretend nothing had happened between last year and this year in the shine a light space we recalculated we sat with our partners and we said okay what's changed between last year and this year where can we bring in real added value again this year and therefore we adjusted between those two times so so it's 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 interesting in a way that also when you have all all these players around the table sometimes they would like to collaborate, and I happen to know all these organizations very well, EGC, ADL, JCRCs, all the different members of the coalition. And, 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 and they're not opposed to working together, but sometimes they need the, the neutral convener, sort of the, the, the that that brings them together so that it doesn't... And the advantage is if she's a foreigner and she doesn't really understand the internal policy, <laughs> right. a lot of it passes straight over her head. So I think... And if, and if they it. also... And if the and if there's and if there's a carrot there too, which is which is, you know, a very well funded, effective project that also benefits them. But but but, but I think that that the idea uh, what we're trying to conceptualize here is is the role that funders can play as honest brokers and and conveners of of coalitions among grantees. And it's a delicate art because you you again, as you said before, you don't want to force them. You don't want to say that oh, I'm coming with the money, so I'm forcing you to do something you don't want to do. But on the other hand, you 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 want to find the right level of push to make that happen. And that only works if you have the prior trust relationship with your grantees built. When you call for arguments like the HAC, they they also know that you have their best, you know. Yes, although I will tell you that ADL is an example of an organization we had never worked with before. Right. Or Shine a Light. And I think Jonathan Greenblatt will probably tell you himself that he had thought I'd lost my mind, but you know, he was going to give me the vague benefit of the doubt. And, you know, ADL has has been a very important partner in this space. With other organizations like AJC, we had a trusted relationship. Yeah. We've never worked with JFNA before. So I'm not sure it's necessarily I mean, it's ideal if you can, yeah. but the beauty of having other funders there is if you haven't done it, one of them has. One of them would have that relationship and it's exactly. giving the credibility of, right. Exactly. And therefore, if you're not that trusted voice, you know, you bring others who are. You know, I'm also a very direct, upfront communicator, right? What you see is what you get. Like, I think people can tell that about me fairly early on. So, you know, there was no kind of hidden meaning or subterfuge here. It was all very upfront and straightforward. It was, no one's going to hold a gun to your head on this. This is the idea. What do you think? How would you bring expertise to the table? Like, in some cases, we had ideas of where different organizations could play, but we very much wanted to hear from them what they thought the meaning and the value was. I think they saw the genuine experts from outside of the Jewish space that had been convened, you know, whether it was David Sable and Rachel Krauss who, you know, bring the branding and the marketing and the ideation to the table and then really helped build the strategy. And they are, you know, David is a world-renowned, award-winning um, figure in this space, you know, who isn't, isn't necessarily known for doing these kinds of projects. Like when you right. understand that real expertise has been convened, that can give you additional added value, but that also we are not looking to make these organizations' lives harder. 
right? right? If anything, we're hoping to make them easier by having done some of the heavy lifting, whether it's the like social media posts or whatever else. But also there was the carrot element, right? We ran, JFNA ran for us a micro grants program. But what that meant, for example, is that a JCRC in one state that I happen to know has a $5,000 a year programming budget was able to apply for a micro grant and got a $7,000 grant to do work on anti-Semitism. That right. is, you know, a huge lift for them for, for a state that normally has a $5,000 grant. So right. it was right, grants, right, right. But, the, but they had to come with ideas, with creativity, with being a part of the program to get the grant. Um, there was also an opportunity, therefore, for this to be very decentralized and hyper-local, right? Some of it was completely national. Some of it was that South Carolina has had events every day of Hanukkah around Shine a Light, and their events look completely different to the events in Kansas City or the events in LA. And that's all the beauty of it. Like, take from the Shine a Light convening and the platform what works for your local community and for Connecticut, that was an online David Bedil platform for, you know, Kansas City last year, it was a play for LA, it was a, you know, a gathering of all the local officials on Friday, and then a Hanukkah lighting at the Grove last night, right? It really is a very much the opposite of a one size fits all. It's you make this local and, and personalized to you. I also think that it was an iterative process, right? As these organizations came to the table, they started to understand the value. Like one of the main feedbacks we had from last year from the education pillar is actually this is the first time we as the educators, 10 organizations in this space have actually sat together, worked on something off the back of that. We've discovered we're both working on this and we're going to convene something together. So like it was iterative. They the proof was in the in the delivery of the projects that showed people the value and that every time that happened, we said, okay, great. Now let's move to the next stage. We also let people keep their proprietary data. We didn't say, give us all of your contacts, your emails, et cetera. Right. We said, tell us who your contacts are so that we don't ask three organizations to be doing the same thing, but then you go off and engage. And if you overlap with another organization, great, keep in touch with each other as to how you're doing. But if you are... AJC and you have a relationship with a corporate, or if you are UJA and you've got a relationship with Deloitte, you continue to have that conversation. And actually then Deloitte comes along to the Shine a Light event on Monday night, but you've also brought in Project Shema to run an anti-Semitism DEI workplace training program for Deloitte. But the, so, the relationship is still held by... Right, you still, you still own, like, it's, it's, it's a sort of a controlled sharing economy. Let me let me just ask you something else. Like definition of anti-Semitism these days are tricky. You know, I mean they're not tricky. Let, let me put it, let me rephrase that. They are they don't seem to be tricky for 80% of the Jewish community, but they're very or 87%, I think. 85-85%. But there are vocal minorities that 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 would not agree with the way you and I define anti-Semitism. So so how how does China like deal with that. So I think, by the way, the anti-Semitism definition is the same problem we find ourselves with everything in the world, right? If you right. let the loudest voices on the fringes rule, then you've lost the majority. And actually, right. the majority of the Jewish community, you know, 85 or 90 percent when asked of American Jews said that Israel holds a very important place for them in their Jewish identity. You know, they are 
the majority of Jews are clear that actually the IRA definition, when they understand it, and that's partly why yeah. it's down on the Shine a Light website, is, is the definition that most applies to them. And right. therefore, Shine a Light is a coalition of the willing. If that definition doesn't work for you, this isn't the right campaign for you. But right. for the majority of Jews around the world, the IRA definition is the one that actually does speak to how they feel about anti-Semitism. Yeah. And for no other community would outside of the community define the definition. So for me, it's very much about the Jewish community and the majority, large, large majority of the Jewish community defining the definition for themselves, not those who shout the loudest from the fringes. Right. And and it doesn't mean that when you say that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, that doesn't mean that you automatically will convalidate everything that the Israeli government does. You know, many of the coalition members can be highly critical of specific policies of the state of Israel, but they still say yeah, that. And, and as you know, I used to work for the Israeli government and can go toe to toe on any Israeli government policy and have a healthy dose of uh, of criticism for Israeli many right. Israeli policies. Right. But to right. me, right. there is a big difference between those two things. And as I say, it's all very transparent. It's on the website. Like right. it literally says, if I criticize the policy of the Israeli government, am I anti-Semitic? No. Like it, right. it, it's broken down. You know, this is front and center, a part of of Shine a Light. Yeah. And if it doesn't work for you, this isn't the campaign for you. Right, 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 right. And, and shifting gears a little bit, like we talk about how, you know, interesting and complicated, but ultimately rewarding it was to work with all these external partners. Now, how was a little bit, how was the process internally in, in the in the Kirsch Foundation to, to get to the idea to, that we're going to be doing this and we're going to be putting our name and, and you know, our capital, of course, but you know, more influence into that process? Um, so it, it was a process, quite literally. Um, you know, generally speaking, the Kirsch Foundation focuses a huge amount of its attention on sub-Saharan Africa, which is where the Kirsch family is from. You know, we do a lot of work led by the family who have very strong philanthropic values like running through from the matriarch and patriarch to the great great to the great grandkids who are now six years old and it's very much who they are and therefore because of that actually they're not particularly public about their giving you know they they genuinely get the reward from doing the giving from hearing the stories of, of lives they're impacting versus necessarily needing to take ownership of it or be particularly visible so right. this was a real sea change they've always been incredibly supportive and generous in these spaces and funding these causes. And as we just touched on, obviously, the Jewish security piece being a big part of that. One of the family members, you know, particularly felt after the last conflict between Israel and Gaza, that that there was a noticeable sea change in the feeling in America. You know, I was actually in Israel at the time in a bomb shelter. So I kind of had to believe him. But also I I grew up in, in Europe, where I think my tolerance to these things is, as we discussed, different, you know, but he felt very strongly that there was a, a, a notable feeling of difference on the streets in America. And what what could we do about it? And so it was a it was a process and, and it was a process where we where we talked to, you know, leaders in the in the Jewish community and said, you know, how are you finding things on the ground? And actually, the universal feedback we were getting from you know, top figures in the community, but also grantees to, you know, grassroots in synagogue was the Jewish community feels paralyzed, scared, and like the the conflict has arrived onto the streets of America. 
right. and somewhat alone, I think. And all the various organizations were feeling that way individually. And that was part of where the need to bring people together was, because actually that right. can be very isolating and, and lonely, but not just on an organizational level. You've got a nine-year-old that's been at school that day and been the victim of anti-Semitism is what was going on during that time in the summer. And then right. they come home and they look at TikTok and they're a victim of anti-Semitism. And then you get to your dinner table and your nine-year-old says to you, you know, why did somebody tell me today at school they hate the Jews? Like, it's an incredibly lonely, scary place. And so the conversations kind of continued as to what could the Jewish community do? You know, we're not large in numbers, as we know, in terms of in America, we're, you know, larger than we are in anywhere except Israel, but it's still a very small community, you know, that traditionally hasn't kind of taken to the streets or done big visible demonstrations of concern, but there was a real feeling that actually the time had changed and the Jewish community needed to visibly say to the American non-Jewish community, we have a problem here and we want to share that problem. But it was supposed to be from a position of an outstretched hand versus a baseball bat or a kind of cancel culture approach. It was supposed to be more about like, we want to tell you about the experience of being American Jews. Right. I say with my British accent, but you know what I mean. Or me with my Argentinian yeah, accent. Exactly. Yeah. I live here for five years, it counts at this point. Um, but we want to bring you on that journey with us, right? We want to, if you even just the colors of the website, right? We want this to be a positive, engaging experience. And we want to tell you what we think you can do about it to help Jews in America feel safer, feel less isolated, less discriminated against, and more a part of wider American society. So, so. In a way, what you're saying, if I can, if I can take it one step further, you're saying anti-Semitism is not really a problem of the Jews; it's a problem of the society as a whole. And what you're trying to do is precisely, no pun intended, shine a light on the problem, so that the society as a whole realize that it has a problem. Yeah, and I think you know whether we quote the late great Rabbi Sachs who as you know, I was particularly close with, you know, it is the the canary in the coal mine. It is the first sign of a real fundamental problem in a a democratic society. If you have a problem with the Jews, it never ends well. And it's a mutating virus, right? It's something that does change. There's a reason we call it the oldest hatred and everything else, because it's always there. But depending on what the problem of the day is, you know, you can blame it on the Jews in whatever way you choose to twist the latest incarnation of anti-Semitism. Yeah, and 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 I one of one of my critique of many of the anti-Semitism programs out there, the, the, the anti-anti-Semitism programs, is that is that they they have unrealistic goals. I mean, anti-Semitism is, as you said, the oldest hatred, and it will even flow on on reasons that are not under our control, unfortunately. And, and one of the reasons why, why I find China Light very interesting is that it doesn't claim to solve the problem. It just, it doesn't I, I like to. to pick, I like to pick achievable goals. Exactly. And if, uh, if several thousand years of society have failed before me, I'm, I'm not, not arrogant enough to think that we were going to solve it. Right. Um, but and I, incidentally, for the funders out there listening, if anybody pitches you with an idea that it tells you it's going to end anti-Semitism, say no. <laughs> I'd look at it with a grain of salt. Yeah, <laughs> An anthropic advisor, I, I can tell you that. But I don't believe there's nothing that can be done. I don't right. believe that there's not ways to improve the situation. And I have to say, I think going back to the corporate pillar for a minute, the incredible conversations that we have had over the last 
few weeks with DEI officers across companies around America who are genuinely keen, interested, and want to bring anti-Semitism into the curriculum of diversity, equity, and inclusion, show us that you can make meaningful change. And actually, we're getting, you know, Project Shamar surveys after every one of its sessions that it does. And it's very clear that this is moving the needle and that the people are bringing them in for more sessions and that Jewish staff are reaching out afterwards and saying, I never knew how to do this. And I never knew how to bring up my concerns. And actually, my colleagues are willing to hear them. And actually, I do now have an opportunity. So, you know, even if you just take that piece, or if you take this year, we're piloting, um, engaging in the gaming platforms. Right. And, you know, we could spend an entire hour talking about the concerns around extremism and hatred and harassment on gaming platforms. And if you as want- a, As a player of computer games with my kids, I can tell you that's, that's real concern. And if you want a depressing read, go read the new ADL report on uh, hate is not a game. But- um, yeah. But that doesn't mean we, you know, it's it's the 28 million, you know, kids at any one time. And that's like up to 21 are, are on these games, right. right? Playing them hours and hours a day. And, you know, there is no longer an opportunity for the Jewish community to kind of pretend that that's not, that's not something real and meaningful where we need to engage. It, it, to it, incidentally, I'm just curious about that one. Are gaming platform more receptive to... So I'm address gonna, the issue than social media platform. I quote Daniel Kelly from the ADL, who I who I interviewed yesterday, and you know he said, unfortunately, gaming platforms are ten years behind social media companies. But wow. we've also learned from our engagement with social media companies, right? And you know, I think I think there is real meaningful work to be done there. You know, different games do it differently. There are there are some games who and some game designers and owners who are doing good steps. Unfortunately, there is still a huge problem there. There's also the same problem, but worse, that we see on social media, whether it's that legislators don't really understand it, authorities don't really understand it. If possible, they understand it less than they understand social media. You know, parents don't know how to address it. But, you know, there's a real mentality shift that needs to be happening. You know, if your 12-year-old told you, like, I'm off out, I'll see you when I see you, and you didn't know who, where, when, what, et cetera, you would have a concern, but because they're in their bedroom for five hours, somehow it's seen as safer when actually all the statistics are showing us that there is real problems there brewing. So, you know, it was a new pillar to shine a light this year. I can't pretend to in any way be an expert and I've just learned what a streamer is. I'm told I would be a Call of Duty player, which probably says something about my uh, personality. I'm not sure that's I'm not sure it does a compliment. No, but... no, I agree. I don't think it's a compliment. But I, I, what I now understand is how much I don't understand and how much it really is a problem. Now, in the same way as last year, us doing a particular emphasis on the corporate space helped organizations think about their strategy. I genuinely believe the same is true on the gaming platform. So if yeah. we can shine a light on not yeah. just the, the big piece of anti-Semitism, but also some of the particular upcoming challenges that we need to be working on i think that's also a part of it and um so just to finish you said this is now we're now in china light 2.0 how's china light 3.0 we haven't even finished 2.0 yet i know but but but, but, but probably when this podcast will come out it will be after hanukkah so we'll be people will say okay i love that but it's already over so what what's going to happen next year so, you know, I think we, we're big, big believers in reflecting and getting real feedback. We'll do debriefs with all our 100 partners and, and, and everything in January and February. 
And, you know, the, the common piece is going to stay the same. The convening platform, the bringing the best in the world experts to the table to help us move the needle on on those thought processes. You know, the the underpinnings of, of the point and the values of Shine a Light are going to stay exactly the same. But in the same way this year, we added the, the gaming pillar and we realized that students aren't on campus at the moment. And we therefore pivoted as to where we were focusing. We'll also, you know, have new focuses and engagement and it's very much a collaboration so i can't tell you now what shiner like 3.0 is because we're going to engage with our 100 partners to see where we can continue to add value so i think whatever it will be i think it's going to continue using the same principles that that we've discussed and as i said i think it's it's this is an excellent case study of philanthropic collaborations of of creating platforms and regardless of the the actual product that happens to be of very high quality, I think that the process leaves us a lot of learnings and and a lot of concepts that can be applied to many other fields in which collaborations can be can be important and useful. Just to just to close this, having worked in you know issues that are tough like security and you know I, I happen to know part of the work that the foundation does in Africa and it's also confronting different challenges and and but but very hard challenges so among all these hard issues and and hot potatoes what 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 gives you hope i have to say everything we do gives me hope first of all that there are funders and philanthropists and members of jfn networks that are genuinely day in and day out thinking about how they can make the world better. And the family I work for is, is, you know, one very high caliber example of that. But actually the all of the work that there are these incredibly dedicated people who have quite literally chosen to pour their lives and, and hearts and souls into this very hard work and do it incredibly well and meaningfully gives me hope. You know, when you're there when they're digging a water well in Africa and you really understand the difference between, you know, children dying every day from waterborne diseases or being run over on their way to get water and actually, you know, what it means when that water is is clean and drinkable and that you could work with an Israeli partner like Innovation Africa to bring that work or whether you see that 24 hours after the war with Ukraine that Israel aid could be on the border, you know, to be the first ones at the Moldovan border to really bring that that insight or whether it's actually you know the the role that arts and culture can play in bringing communities together and helping them find a common language i actually think the philanthropic world is filled with hope it's actually the most hopeful part of the work that i've ever had because you you are able to work with people to find solutions thank you amen to that so thank you carly very very much Thank you very much. And thank you to JFN for allowing me the opportunity to come on here, but also to meet many of the of the funders I'm now working with, as I think it was the first conference I ever went to as when I uh, when I took this job. So thank you. Thank you so much to Carly Maisel. You can learn more about Shine a Light on www.shinealight.com. And thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, but also guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, Whatever you want to send us, write us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at Spokoini. I'll leave you with a quote from William Shakespeare that says, How far that little candle throw his beams. 
So shines a good deed in a weary world. So keep shining lights, keep giving, and join us next time on What Gives.